The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Ian Castle of uh, Microcap Club. Um, Ian, I know you've built a, a nice name over the last decade plus here, but for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. How you, uh, how'd you get involved in markets? Why the focus on microcap investing? And what are you doing uh, in this current environment, which is a loaded uh, first question here. <laughs> now, first, uh, I'm going to thank you, Michael, for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to your audience. Uh, you're right. That is a very open-ended, loaded question. I could probably spend the next 60 minutes just answering that one. But you know, kind of the, the quick version of, of my background is I got introduced to markets when I was a teenager, which would have been the late 90s during the dot-com bubble. And, uh, you know, my, my parents, you know, saved a, a small amount of money for me. They gave it to me during my junior year at high school. I invested it with their advisor. I invested in a few small cap tech stocks. You know, they obviously did well, you know, because you could have threw a dart at a newspaper and done well in that time period. And, you know, turned 20 grand into 120 grand thinking that my luck was skill. Uh, and then wrote it the whole way back down to, you know, 120 to $8,000, you know, then, during when the dot-com bubble crashed. And for all intents and purposes, I got introduced to microcap investing during the dot-com crash because those small cap tech companies I own turned into microcaps. You know, and so for you know those that are on here, you prob- probably most people know what microcaps are, but you know, microcaps, it depends on where you are, what geography, but most people define microcaps as you know, sub 300 million, sub 500 million, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. And, you know, most people have never heard of most of these small microcap companies, but they do represent um, actually a majority of the public companies that exist worldwide to give you some numbers there. You know, 20,000 public equities in North America, uh, a little over half would be considered microcap companies. And, you know, pretty much everybody has never heard of most of these small companies. And that's that's sort of the opportunity. And so. To finish my personal story a little bit, so when I was during the dot-com bubble crash, I was working, I was going to college full time, and it's also also working for a financial advisor. You know, I was mainly kind of just a glorified receptionist answering phones. And what I remember distinctly during the dot-com crash was, you know, having to answer the phones, talking to clients. Um, You know, they were in every kind of emotional state that you can imagine. You know, and just having to deal with them through that environment taught me that I didn't want to have clients. 
you know, I really didn't want to deal with other people's emotions uh, of the stock market. And, you know, really from that point forward, I knew I wanted to be involved in micro caps because I, I was forced to be in them given where my portfolio was at that point in time. And I knew I didn't want to have clients. And I, I and just from that point forward, I just wanted to be a full-time private investor, just, you know, kind of working and living off my own balance sheet. And that was sort of from that point forward every day, that's all I thought about. And you know, through some mentors, some luck, some skill, and and you know, strictly in a microcap kind of strategy, was able to become a full time private investor during the financial crisis of OE to 09. And from OE to 09, launched microcapclub.com in 2011. You know, I really wanted to get to see more ideas in this niche of investing. Um, I kind of had kind of cut my teeth, learned how to do microcap investing from being on public message boards in the early 2000s. I loved the forums. I loved message boards. And so I kind of created my own private forum called Microcap Club in 2011. It's a private forum. You know, I really wanted to get as many smart microcap investors as I knew globally on this forum to talk about what they liked and why. And so that launched in 2011. You know, now it's, we reached, you know, now it's 10 year anniversary plus, you know, since then. And I think, uh, Microcap Clubs turned into a pretty cool forum. Again, we probably have about a thousand participants. It's a rather small forum, uh, but it's very active. And really, the mission is to find great companies early. So that was a that was a, that still continues to be a valuable tool for my personal investing. Twenty sixteen, um, me and another member of Microcap Club co-authored two books on the topic of intelligent fanaticism. Intelligent fanatics is a term that Charlie Munger used to describe a uh, amazing entrepreneur that has built something from nothing up until up to a business that has kind of dominated a niche and uh, in an industry, you know, not for just a few years, but for decades. I was really interested in kind of fine tuning my qualitative lens for investing. Uh, because, you know, honestly, if you want to find great companies early, you need to find great leaders early. And so kind of dove into that topic of intelligent fanaticism you know, kind of dove into some stories about how these entrepreneurs build businesses, the things they put in place to create dominant businesses, and then really with the purpose of trying to then find those great leaders in the microcap, you know, ecosystem. 2018, you know, I was kind of reaching middle age, becoming a full-time private investor for 10 years, working out of the corner of my house and just, you know, thought maybe I could run some outside capital. So I ended up launching a fund late 2018 and uh, still am today. And now we we manage capital on behalf of about 70 families that want some intelligent exposure to this small niche of microcap investing. It's a unscalable strategy, you know, just because you can only throw so much money at a bunch of illiquid microcaps, especially when you're a concentrated investor like I am. But uh, it's been a, a heck of a run over the last 20 years. Microcap investing is all I've ever done. It's all I, you know, wake up thinking about doing, and it still keeps me going. All right. So you talked about that that leap from leaving the the advisor to basically living off of your own balance sheet. And I think it's fair to say that one of the key characteristics of microcaps is they're not very liquid. And I don't know what which is harder, managing other people's money or managing your balance sheet when there's potential illiquidity when you need that capital. Just talk through that personal experience a bit for the audience, because I think a lot of people like the idea of managing money for themselves and being their own boss. But there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty along the way, depending upon how liquid your underlying investments are. It is. And it's, you, you tend to hear a lot about financial independence and making that leap during bull markets. And 
you know, I think the, I get asked quite a bit, like how much capital do you need? And that's a very personal question. Obviously it depends on where you're at in life and where you live uh, and what you want to do. You know, do you want to live like a hermit by yourself, you know, or are you married, you have kids, you know, it all depends, but you know, and then if you throw on top of that, like you said, the illiquidity, the volatility inherent in microcap equities, you know, that adds to that. For me, when I made that leap to being just full-time private investor, you know, I was single, you know, I'm living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is known for our Amish people. You know, it's a pretty low cost of living. You know, I was not living in Manhattan. You know, I do, I could live off $2,000 a month if I needed to, and I did. Um, and so that was kind of the situation then. And, you know, and obviously the stresses and complexities of living off your balance sheet, then it weighs on you more and more than as you add complexity to your life, such as getting married, having kids, you know, because then you start thinking, well, you know, it's, it's okay if I, if I have a couple bad years and I just have to go get a job and, you know, that's, that's okay. You know, cause it's just me, it's just me who I'm impacting with a bad investment decision. But when you put a family on top of that, you know, you don't, you can't let that happen. You can't let them down. And that adds to a lot of emotional pressure on top of that when it, when it comes to becoming a full-time kind of private investor, you know, and for me, so when I made that leap, what I, what I kind of thought of when I did it was I want to have an amount of capital in my brokerage account where I could sustain two 30% down years in a row. Cause I, I did that before, you know, kind of building my capital base up to that point. And, you know, until I kind of got to that capital base where I could withstand that two down 30% years in a row, which does happen, you know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make that leap because it's important, as you know, to kind of keep to your strategy, keep to your process. Not any strategy can go up and to the right in a straight line, unless you're Simmons, you know, and so you have to be able to withstand the volatility that is inherent, not only in these equities themselves, but the volatility for this space is much greater than, you know, the S&P as a whole as well. It's funny, he said, unless you're Simmons, I'd argue, uh, unless you're Madoff. Yeah, right? and, Madoff. <laughs> right, and that, that kind of gets to be a, an interesting discussion point because there is this perception, as you know, that micro caps are like the, the Wild West, right? Sure, there's accounting, sure, there's regulation, but uh, there's arguably a degree of, you know, some companies that might be outright fraudulent, some companies that are trying to, entice investors to create these pump and dump schemes. Uh, talk about the minefield for a moment and how you try to avoid those problematic stocks, because I have to imagine that's probably the hardest part of the game. It is, but it's also the most commonsensical. And, and you know, the unfortunate thing is that most people get their first entree into microcap investing when they receive some, some glossy magazine or mailer to their, you know, to their uh, mailbox, you know, and they see this 20 page glossy thing. It says this random symbol is the next Amazon. They buy it. And 99% of the time, or actually 99.9% actually kept track of the ones I would receive, uh, would go down 99% within 12 to 24 months. And so unfortunately people get, you know, that's sort of their appetizer to the microcap ecosystem. It's unfortunate because that's not, I think most people think that's normal and that's, that's not normal. You know, I would say that's, you know, maybe five or 10% of, you know, this space is that. Uh, and, and the way I kind of tell people to look at this space is the way you cut out a lot of these issues is by only looking at profitable businesses. 
you know? And so you cut out probably 95% of the issues of this space when you actually focus on the, the microcap companies that actually have real businesses that are making profits. And that's what I would encourage people to do. And so when you're looking at 10,000 microcaps in North America, for example, I think about 18% of them are profitable. And so you can kind of quickly cut out 82% of the space, you know, and you're going to get rid of probably 95% of your headaches. Doesn't mean you're going to make money. These companies are still small. They're still emerging. They'll still stub their toe or trip over themselves and they still might fail. But a lot of those extra issues that is predominant in, or at least perceived predominant in microcap, you know, go away if you just kind of focus at least on profitable businesses. So I think it's interesting because that's, I'd argue, counter to some of the popular narrative around the idea that you want to go for those companies that maybe aren't profitable because they're reinvesting or they're they're playing for the long-term profitability and that's why they don't have profit now. So when you talk about profit, is there is there a certain number or percentage in terms of margin that you're looking for? Talk about some of the metrics just in terms of hard rules when you try and screen stocks that you typically go for. Well, you know, what I look for now, what when I said to, to to focus on profitable companies, I meant that specifically to people that are new to this arena so they don't get hurt. You know, I myself, you know, obviously I have some profitable businesses in the portfolio, but I also am trying to find the ones kind of like you talked about, which may, may be inflecting on that profitability. Uh, and so, you know, the, what, I'm, what I'm looking for is maybe a little bit different than maybe a, what a new person should look for entering the space. But, you know, basically what I look for with my investing is I'm trying to find really, really unique businesses that just happen to be small public companies. You know, and I'm a big fan of this idea of scarcity. And I think you've probably heard a few other investors talk about it as well. But, you know, it's easy to invest in a business that is, you know, where there's a thousand other businesses doing the exact same thing or selling a similar product, just marketing it a little bit differently. You know, I'm not interested in those types. I want to find one of ones or one of twos, especially where there's not another one in the public market. You know, and that provides that scarcity. And so you're combining a business that's really, really unique like that combined with high organic growth rates that is in a tailwind. You know, the wind's at their back with what they're doing. You know, that's how you produce, you know, really, really high returns. For me, and everybody invests differently, you know, but for me, I'm trying to find undervalued businesses that can get overvalued. I'm not a deep value investor you know, trying to find things that are bad that can get less worse. You know, I want to find something good that can become great. And everything that is scarce, that has a tailwind to it, that's the biggest propellant of price. You know, and I'm really trying to find businesses that are special, unique, that are growing rapidly because everybody is drawn to those types of businesses. Institutions are drawn to those businesses. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find those special businesses before the institutions find them. Um, I had a couple of experiences even during the the 0809 crisis where one of my investments, I think I was, I'm, I've always been concentrated and I don't recommend this to others, but during 0809, it was, I was in three companies and, you know, two of them were probably down 60% peak to trough. And then I had one that was up about 300%, you know, during that, when the S&P went down 52% or whatever it was. And it wasn't, you know, some inverse ETF or I wasn't, it wasn't some, you know, long gold or anything like that. It was strictly a small 
illiquid microcap company that was growing 100% a year, that was growing its earnings 200% a year, that institutions didn't own. That's what I found unique about kind of this area. And that was like a 30, 40 million market cap company to give you an idea, which is tiny. And what I found was even during a, an awful economic backdrop, like 08, 09, institutions were still interested in owning things that were growing rapidly, that were growing earnings per share rapidly that they didn't own. And nobody owned it to sell it. So even in that market environment, it went up. And um, so that's, that's really what I still try to find today is try to find those outlier special businesses. I got to assume one of the challenges, though, is trying to figure out if a situation is massively underpriced or if it's in distressed mode, right? Because it's easier to tell with something that's highly liquid if it's distressed. I think it's, I'm going to assume, a lot harder to know if, if a company is under distress when there's illiquidity because the price action may be driven more by the illiquidity than the fundamentals. Well, and, and you, you actually raised another really good point which might not be your question, but I'll, I'll act like you asked it. You know, just because these, these companies are illiquid and undiscovered doesn't mean they're undervalued. You know, something that's illiquid and undiscovered can be overvalued. It's just that it's illiquid. Maybe there's one person there that's just buying it or whatever. I mean, that's literally like the game to play in microcap a lot of times where, you know, one or two investors can move the stock 100%, you know, that want to own it. And so, yeah, when it comes down to valuation, it really depends on, you know, the individual business that you're looking at an individual company that you're looking at. But, you know, so it's hard to answer that as a whole. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a fair point. Okay, now you mentioned uh, concentrated is your style, and I've referenced this before in prior spaces, but I remember... 15 years ago, I was at a conference. I forget who said it, but it's, it, it stayed with me to this day. Somebody I was listening to said that diversification is a luxury for the rich, right? Which implies, of course, that if you want to get very wealthy, of course, you've got to take a concentrated bet. Now, of course, the other side of that is, you know, you get wealth by concentration. You also go broke by concentration. So first define just for yourself, what is concentration? How many positions do you typically hold on to? Are there any sort of max sizing that you consider? How do you think about rebalancing a micro cap portfolio? Talk about some of the things that more small, mid and large cap managers would themselves do when it comes to micro cap. Um, I think the, I think the definition of a concentration, you know, changes given, I mean, you can talk to folks that, that believe 30 companies is concentrated, but 60 companies and that five are concentration. You know, I think it's, I think it's a very personal decision. I know for me, for me, it comes down to what number of companies can I understand at an intimate level to where I feel like I know more than anybody else. And that's sort of my ceiling. You know, and for me, it's always been around this, call it six to eight company mark, where I felt I could keep a pulse 
on the business. I knew it intimately. I knew it better than pretty much anybody else that was looking at it. And when I, when I get a, much above that level, I feel like I'm losing that edge. And that edge is important in a concentrated, not only because you're concentrated, but for me, microcap is mainly a big part of my strategy is just knowing as much as I can about the business, the, the forces that are impacting that, that business, mainly to protect myself from the downside. You know, I could talk a lot about, oh, look at these big wins I had over the last 20 years. Yeah, that's great. You know, what, why I'm still in this game today is because of the losses I never took. That came strictly from knowing what I own and knowing what I own really, really well. And most of the bigger losses that I've taken, it's when I've taken my eye off the ball a little bit. And as much as it is riding winners, which is important to knowing these businesses really well, having the conviction to stick with something that goes up two, three, five, hundred percent or more, whatever it is, it's just as important to be able to sell things when the thesis starts cracking, when the business starts cracking, when you see those signs changing the trajectory of that business and selling it before other people. You know, that's probably more important to me in this business than anything. Now, why is that? Well, I'll just give you a quantitative answer. You know, if you were to ask me, how many of the businesses that that you owned five years ago do you still own today? Well, let's just just say I've owned 40 companies over the last five years on and off. I own maybe four. And so four out of 40 doesn't mean I lost money on 36. I may have made money on another 25 of those, but the thesis changed and I exited the position. And here I am, somebody that I feel probably knows decently well what I'm doing. And I'm still not right all the time. I'm certainly probably not right, you know, 60, 70% of the time. And you know, there's different degrees of rightness, you know, whether you made money or lost money, but you know, it's, it's, this is very tough. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy, you know, investing in microcaps because these are evolving businesses. You know, they do change and they do have, if it's a company that has one product or one service, they do go through periods of rapid growth where they might work for two or three or eight quarters. And then all of a sudden you see in management, you know, trying to do their best to create a real business, launch other products, but they stumble. And then that's why you see a lot of companies, even the successes go from a dollar to 10 and back to one. You know, it's it's hard to find those businesses that deserve to be held for more than a few years. All right, but, but let's go with an example the the business or the stock that went from a dollar ten and then back to one. So in that in that past behavior, as it's appreciating, do you say to yourself, "I'm going to let it ride. I'm going to try and hope or wait to see that this becomes a small cap or mid cap company," or do you start trimming? Because this is, I think, the issue with not just microcap, but anything that's more private equity or VC-like, right? You'll have one or two positions that make up the bulk of the returns. The dilemma there, of course, is that the more that one position becomes the ultimate winner, the more concentration risk there is on the overall portfolio because it becomes a bigger weight of the portfolio against all the yeah. other positions. Yeah, it, 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 it really depends on the robustness of the business. You know, if it really is one or uh, one or two product or service company, um, you have to think about, you know, taking some off, and I do. You know, if it's more of a robust business where you have, you know, a thousand customers, you know, across 50 countries with that's recurring, that has 99% renewal rates, you know, that's a different story. You know, so you like, again, it's, it's a hard question to answer because it really depends on the, 
the quality of the business that you're invested in and also obviously the valuation. What tends to happen is these, you might buy a company that might even be profitable. It might be trading at 10, 15 PE, you know, that all of a sudden starts growing rapidly. You know, they go from earning two cents in one quarter to five to 10. And that's all it takes for a 10-bagger. It's like, you know, just successive earnings increases and the market gets carried away to the upside. And something that trades for 10 times earnings, then all of a sudden trades at 100 times earnings, goes up 10x, and then they eventually stumble. And then it gets cut in half or more. And so you just have to be kind of evaluating these businesses in real time and not getting carried away with any type of hype that may be going on that's influencing the multiple. But I like that you're 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 framing everything in terms of the business is not stock, right? Which is yeah, right. And that's actually an important distinction for the audience too. It's like when you're dealing with these smaller cap, uh, micro cap companies. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, but you really have to have more the mindset of a private equity VC type of manager as opposed to a trader or even an investor in a passive index. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, you really. I mean, everybody says it and it's hard to live it out, but you really do have to disconnect the business from the stock. And it's hard to do because we're all impacted by price. We see it every day, you know, on our broker screens. But uh, it's also what, you know, gets me so excited about the current environment we're in. You know, it gets me excited seeing things that are down because, you know, God forbid we have room for multiple expansion again, you know, which we haven't in probably five years. Yeah. I mean, you do, but in this space, you do have to to really disconnect the the price from the business. And, you know, oftentimes it's, it's on the, you know, if, if sentiment is a pendulum swinging back and forth to hate, to love, you know, it's on those fringes where there are opportunity, you're the seller to buy. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Do you use any kind of technical analysis in anything that you do? I mean, I know we just distinguish between business and stock, but so like, for example, I'm not a huge believer in the idea of volume confirmation when it comes to large, mid or small cap stocks, the sort of classic technical analysis uh, argument that you need to have some relativity to spot major inflection points because there's ETFs and there's a lot of other ways that volume, you know, ends up occurring in the absence of looking at an individual stock. How do you think about volume when it comes to microcap? If you see volume spikes or periods of low volume, um, and and really from the perspective of execution, because you know if you're going to be concentrated, you can't do a market order on something that's illiquid. You've got to probably scale in over multiple days, if not weeks. Uh, talk about how you think about volume uh, and if that's a tell of anything. You know, normally if I see a volume spike, it's usually turns me off more than turns me on just because, you know, I want to be ahead of any volume that would have been <laughs> spiking. But I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it depends what your definition of the liquidity is. You know, I kind of think illiquidity is sort of a personal decision too. I kind of view the definition of a liquidity should be, can you yourself buy your entire position in a day or not? And if you can't, then it's an illiquid stock. <laughs> you know, so if you're imagining a billion dollars, you know, your definition of liquidity liquidity might be different than somebody imagining $100, you know, but uh, it is, you know, it takes days, weeks, sometimes months, you know, to acquire a position. 
in, in some of these businesses. But the one thing that's interesting about small businesses that are executing is there's sort of this law. It's almost like it's defined as gravity to where, you know, the higher stock goes, the more the liquidity increases. You know, a stock that trades 20,000 shares a day at a dollar, so $20,000 in daily volume. You know, when it gets to five, it'll probably trade 200,000 shares a day at five. So that's a million dollars worth a day. And so one of my early mentors used to have this saying, which I love. He said, don't, don't worry about illiquidity, worry about being right. And, uh, you know, it's, I remember I, I just love that line because it's so true. And so you just have to be aware of that. And so I'm, illiquidity doesn't scare me away. But when I first got into microcaps, when I first started investing, you know, I would buy my position all at once. And that works when it works, but it doesn't work when it doesn't work. And so now it's more of laddering in, you know, where, you know, I buy a position. I wait to see more execution for management, and then I'm not afraid to buy more. And the great thing about microcaps or even small caps is, you know, a, a business that's small that's executing that keeps on growing and earning more money. You know, it's you, there's a lot a lot of room to run to the upside. So just doesn't you don't need to buy all of it at once. You know, you can ladder it in. And quite honestly, the best stocks I've ever bought were companies I was constantly averaging up in, not averaging down. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm I'm again. This is not an area that I focus myself on too much, but I'm going to make the assumption, which I don't think is too far fetched, that if you think about you know beta versus idiosyncratic risk, idiosyncratic risk has got to be a lot higher for microcap companies than larger companies. Meaning the company specific um, fundamentals will drive valuation more than co movement with the broader quote unquote market, and that that then lends itself to sort of a discussion around two types of environments, an environment where it's poor for the economy and an environment where it's poor for the stock market because they're not necessarily related. Do you factor in, or I guess, how do you factor in uh, the macro environment and the investment environment when it comes to these microcap companies that are not going to be co-moving as tightly to the S&P? The way I think about controlling the macro is by controlling the micro. And you're controlling, you know, what I'm invested in. And this has evolved quite a bit over 20 years of investing in this space. I mean, the irony is, you know, when I first got started in microcaps, you know, I was basically a story stock investor. You know, I didn't care about fundamentals. I only actually started caring about fundamentals after I became a full-time investor, ironically enough. So I kind of started just by trying to find trends, finding great stories. I always already believed in scarcity back then. And then it kind of evolved into into precious metals, uh, investing in junior mining companies, then involved into life science companies. And then I started looking more at GARP, you know, type companies, things that actually had profits. And like today, my strategy kind of is a combination of all of those things. It's kind of wrapped up into one where it looks kind of nutty. looks like kind of a stew when you have all the ingredients laid out in the kitchen table. But when you put it together, it tastes kind of good. You know? <laughs> and so that's kind of how my strategy looks today. But, you know, kind of the four key ingredients were that I look for today were that's definitely changed over the last even five years is, you know, I'm really looking for businesses that can grow through a recession. And obviously that is very hard to find. Yeah, no, yeah. let's go that, that, that's because So I'm going to make the argument that that's going to be more driven by the, by the industry that the company's operating in, right? So Correct. it's a, if it's a food distributor or whatever it would be, right? Something that people need, they're more likely to survive, right? And probably yeah. grow, right? So, so talk through that also in terms of, industry makeup. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. 
very intelligently is, is, you know, I have these qualities what I looked for. And so today, for an example, getting into your industry point, you know, right now we're very healthcare centric. Um, and not because I sought after to be in a lot of medical or medical technology or healthcare related companies. It's because they had the qualitative attributes that I was looking for from a kind of a top down and bottom up level, you know, top down, meaning they're resilient through a recession. And also number two is you can find businesses that have, you know, real moats with them, with IP, with technology, 85% gross margins. They can have sustainable 20, 30% operate margins. Um, but I think you also, from the micro standpoint, I'm also looking for businesses that have really, really good balance sheets. You know, I, I love the combination of combining growth and survival at the same time when you're looking at a business. You know, it's not only like a business that is growing double digits, which is hopefully cash generative, but also has a balance sheet that can endure, you know, through a COVID environment, can be aggressive through a recession and maybe acquire a competitor or an overlevered competitor or whatever. Um, and also, obviously, management attributes, quality, qualities is important to me too. Finding those leaders that have those signs of intelligent fanaticism. I don't call anyone that I'm invested in today an intelligent fanatic because I think that's a title that's earned, you know, over time, you know, once you create a $10 billion plus company, you know, not, not the types of companies we're invested in here, but hopefully they will become one. Then obviously valuation is important. I think uh, everybody's, you know, realized that over the last year or two. And so, you know, trying to find those businesses that fundamentally you can and should double your money in three years or kind of looking at a long-term 25% cater, you know, on a fundamental basis. That's, that's, that's predominantly how I think about investing. You mentioned healthcare tech, which actually is, to me, an area I've, I've spent some time looking at. How do you think about environments where there's more likely to be uh, acquisitions, right, by the mid or large cap companies, because presumably when you're talking about tech, they're more likely to be buyout candidates, which, you know, sure, you'd want to see it, right? But obviously, short circuits, your your hope for that 10 or 20 bet. Exactly. Maybe it falls under good problems to have. But, you know, M&A is rampant. It always is in micro caps. You know, to give you an idea, Michael, it's like we've had maybe 850, maybe close to 900 companies now profiled by our members on our private forum, meaning you know, it's an experienced investor writing up a two-page thesis, getting a, a thread started on a message board, starts a conversation. You've had 850 of those. I think, I think 18% have gotten acquired you know, since 2011, which is a decent amount of companies. And most recently, I don't know if you saw, but Brookfield up in Canada, actually, I think they launched, a, or they said they were devoting $110 billion to public buyouts because they're seeing more value in public than private currently, uh, which is actually just an amazing figure. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that a lot of that would be directed to small and micro-cap companies, which is interesting because, you know, I think I, I told the audience earlier in the conversation, 20,000 public equities, 10,000 of them are micro-caps. If you're actually to add the market caps of all of those 10,000 micro-caps together, it would be about 550 to 600 billion. You know, that's, which sounds like a big number, but you know, it's not. I mean, there's probably five companies today individually that have market caps over 550 billion. That's bigger than the entire micro cap ecosystem in North America, <laughs> which is pretty wild. But I, I think because of, and also, I think you also see private equity prices lag six to 12, even 18 months, the public indices. So 
it makes sense how you know the public markets get hit first. It takes a year for private companies to get hit, their valuations. And so they have like this 12-month gap to where I think you'll see an increase of public M&A because of that taking advantage of, of that, um, that gap. No, I mean, I think the people, the people are really, really, really important. And um, I, I don't know if it's just through the battle scars and wounds you get over time of, of investing in, in folks that were a little bit unscrupulous or maybe weren't, didn't have the integrity that, or honesty that you thought that they did have. Um, but it's very important. I spent a lot of time evaluating the management teams um, pretty much with every investment. Maybe not during COVID, but every you know, 15 years prior to that and currently, you know, I try to literally go out and meet with them one-on-one on multiple occasions. And, you know, for me, just first, I think, you know, I I can kind of get do things that the normal private investor maybe can't, such as maybe gain access and go out and meet with the board or meet with the management team, that type of thing. But honestly, I think you can find out a lot about a person just by kind of reading everything that you can find on the people, you know, from their past whether it's past interviews, whether it's the company filings, how they communicate, how they articulate themselves, how they talk about the future. Um, Do they fess up when they stub their toe? Do they blame others? You know, all these things can provide a clue to the character of the management team. I, you know, from my vantage point, I'd love to talk to friends of the management team. You know, it's like, if I wouldn't have um, Michael, I don't know if you're married, but you know, if I want to learn about Michael, I'd, you know, obviously Michael's going to tell me everything great about him. But if I want to really learn about Michael, I'll talk to you know Michael's best friend or my, Michael's wife or partner or or business associate, whoever it is. They'll tell me the real story about how Michael is. And so I try to do a lot of that, you know, actually going around and talking to the, to their friends or associates. Exit interviews, which is predominantly what you're getting when you kind of do expert calls on Tegas or. Um, there's multiple platforms out there. I think they're, I think they're good. Um, you know, the problem is, you know, when you talk to ex employees, when you talk to, you know, people that aren't working in the company anymore, obviously they're, they're sort of negatively biased. So I think it's good because they obviously are, are going to tell you all the skeletons and where they're buried, you know, but you also kind of have to understand they have a negative bias going into the conversation. So you, you try to find a mixture of, of all of that. I think the biggest, the biggest issue you have is, especially when people are kind of getting their feet wet with using expert network platforms, is they do one, exp- you know, they do one interview. You know, I think you really need to do about ten interviews with ten different people to get a full breadth of how what reality actually looks like. I think there was a time, not that long ago, maybe three or four years ago, and maybe I'll just rephrase the the answer or maybe your question too. But I think there's a there was a time where I overemphasized too much the management part of things. And, you know, it's like you're, you, you read William Thorndike's The Outsiders and you want to find this, this hermit that works out of a strip mall, of, you know, operates a $10 billion company and, you know, it's cutting costs and decentralized and this or that and the other things. And you're trying to find something that aligns with, with that. And you're trying to find that perfect thing. And you're, you're, you're focused too much on the individual that's where I've gotten into trouble. You know, I think that's kind of natural during an investor's maturation is, you know, when I first got into investing, like all you know is numbers. So you're obsessed with numbers, financials, accounting. You know, that's why most people kind of get into the space by being a deep value or value investor. because it's all you know. That's what you're taught. And through experience, you start 
you know, maybe, maybe, or maybe not, you know, realizing there's some value to understand the qualitative attributes of management, their decision-making process, that type of thing, you know, and then you focus too much on management and then you may focus too much somewhere else. And what I've learned over 20 years is, you know, it's easy to get too overemphasized into one thing when in reality, successful investing, you kind of have to take two steps back and everything's kind of a puzzle. You know, you know, the management part is one puzzle piece. You know, a great management is going to do that great with a really bad business. You know, and so you're trying to find a good business, good management, and trying to put those all those puzzle pieces together and not overemphasizing one more than the other. The difference between a story stock and one with fundamentals is, you know, really it's <laughs> a pure story stock is something that has zero revenues and that just burns cash. And you know the reason why those can be so dangerous is is obviously <laughs> they need to raise money constantly. You know my biggest risk as a microcap investor is dilution. If I'm being honest with you, it's being in a situation where the business needs to raise capital, they can't get it, and they have to do a severely bad deal. And you see it all the time in microcap. You know where you see a company just have to raise ten million dollars at a forty percent discount with a whole warrant you know, or something like that, where it completely just wipes out equity owners. And so, you know, that's the biggest risk with investing in story stocks is their ability to continuously raise capital, you know, on top of can they even execute on their story. Well, I mean, if, if it's an unprofitable business, I, I think like the rule of thumb usually is like they should have two years or more cash in the balance sheet on the current burn rate. You know, and I think once cash levels get below 12 months, you know, that's when you really start to see the equity be punished because, you know, there's enough algos funds out there that probably can just do a sweep of, you know, a screen of, you know, everything under 500 million market cap, it's burning cash, you know, multiply it and figure out like who has less than a one year cash burn on it, especially in this environment, you can short it. You know, I think there's plenty of funds that do just that, what I described. And so I think it's important, you know, at least for me, especially if they're losing money, hopefully not a lot of money, that they would at least have two years of cash runway. I think that's why I'm so excited about the, the current opportunity set, you know, for finding companies like that, what you described. Uh, because, you know, if you can find a company that, like how you described, that is probably, you know, the multiple is probably contracted by 60 or 70%, you know, and so the stock is down maybe an equal amount. And you can find companies that are growing organically 20 or 30 or 40 percent that are profitable, that are now you know trading at three times sales that were trading at 15 just 18 months ago. It's exciting because you know, even if the multiple stays this low, you can still basically expect to make the growth rate of that company, you know, in the in the years that follow. And God forbid you actually get multiple expansion again. You know, that's where you get the real leverage with multi-backers. You know, it's really the combination of growth and multiple expansion. And we haven't really had the ability for multiple expansion probably for four or five years. So that, that's the exciting part about looking at this opportunity set right now, the current time. This is not a perfect science. It is an art, you know, and, and just because you talk to five different people within the company and uh, you also talk to some employees, which, by the way, is a great way to gauge the culture of a company. You don't talk to the management, you talk to the employees and see if they love to work there. You know, that's an important part of this, too. But, you know, I think. I think you want to talk to the CEO and probably where I made a mistake, you know, 10 years ago would be only talking to the CEO. You know, you want to talk to as many people around the CEO, in addition to past employees, past management, to try to find some realistic picture of the situation. And even then, you still can be wrong. 
Um, you know, I wish there was a secret sauce to this all, but it's really more of an art, you know, than a science. And so, you know, it's funny on the insider information, which is basically what you're asking about. I think, especially in microcap, you you see a lot of management teams probably saying more than they should. And in 95% of the occasions where they say more than they should, you know, you shouldn't have bought that stock. You know, the people with integrity and honesty kind of know where to stop. And the, what I often find is the people that never tell you anything that just execute, you know, are the people that you should be betting on, not the ones that tell you everything you should know and then more. I think it was JF, I think it was JFK Jr., like his dad, was he the one that got the, the SEC started and put the, I forget what it was, he made a lot of money on insider information. You know, it's well known. And uh, I think he had this great line in a book where he said something like, where if I, if I would have made a dime for, for every piece of insider information that actually came true, I'd be really, really poor. You know, so even the insider information that's being spewed, none of it comes true anyway. And so I, it, I try to find the magic teams that I've done well with over time have been the ones that know where that line is and they never cross it. I'm curious, Ian, so you mentioned that you're, you're managing money again. I get the idea of not wanting to manage money for others, but you know, the reality is, you know, if you're, if you believe you're good at something and you, you know, want other people to benefit from it. You want to be selective as far as who benefits from it. Presumably, when it comes to microcap investing in particular, you've got to be really careful with the type of clients that you take in because that's where time frame is going to be critical. Uh, and obviously, having some kind of gate to prevent somebody from wanting you out of positions at the exact wrong time. Talk through some of the qualifiers. I'm just curious, as a somebody who's managing money, what what are the, some of the things that you look for in uh, those clients of that fund. Well, when you when you kind of operate a non-scalable strategy, it kind of focuses you in on you know what's going to provide resilience, you know, from an investor base. You know, what's going to allow you to act as one investor. Um, and for me, you know, honestly, the, when when somebody has interest, um, the, you know, the first thing I try to do is scare them away from investing with me. You know, I'm, I'm just blunt about it. You know, if the market's down thirty, we're going to be down forty five. Are you interested in that? Because that's going to happen. And if you're not, then this isn't for you. You know, it's just the reality of it. Um, and so I think it's important to be upfront and honest with folks about the volatility of this space. Because in generally, our lows are lower and our highs are higher. And over time, the average is better, you know, hopefully. So that's just the reality of investing in this space, especially concentrated. The other way, when, we, when I started and I, I launched it with separately managed accounts is I actually had a maximum people could invest. And you probably would find that funny, Michael, because, you know, nobody has a maximum of how much people can invest with you, you know, but I actually did. I had like a, it was like a hundred thousand maximum and a 200,000, or I'm sorry, a hundred thousand minimum and a 200,000 maximum. The reason for that is, you know, I didn't have a lockup. These are illiquid concentrated portfolio. And I didn't want to have anybody that had more control than I did as an investor on the portfolio. And I kind of saw the only way to do this and do it correctly was to have a table with 45 legs on it, not four or three or two, where if you pull one leg out, the whole thing falls over. You know, I want to have a really, really great large group of core investors that buy into what I'm doing. And so over time, what's happened is, you know, this is not an institutional product offering. You know, this isn't something that endowments are writing checks to because what we do is too small, you know, but my investors predominantly are small business owners, you know, GPs of other hedge funds or GPs of private equity groups or GPs of venture capitalists. But 
it's probably 90% just small business owners. You know, the guy down the block or probably people listening on this call that have a, you know, two to $10 million net worth that, you know, want to peel off you know, a couple hundred grand to do, do something like this because they connect with it. Because for them, it's like them investing in themselves because that's probably what these businesses are. There are small businesses that would probably be not even be the largest company in the small town you grew up in. And so I have a really great group of core investors that understand all of that. And you, you kind of see it when you go through the down spells, you know, just like anything, any trials and tribulations, you know, during a COVID trough or during a drawdown like we've had this year, it's like, I don't have to hold hands. I don't have to, you know, defend myself for anything. You know, they do the right thing at the right time. The small business owner investor is like, it's, they're better than any kind of doing air quotes because nobody can see me like financial investor because, you know, they naturally know what to do. They're the ones saying, oh, I should probably put more in because we're down X, Y, Z. Yeah. Like I don't have, you know, tell them, you know, and it's also the, the fact that I limit, limit people to how much they can put in. It's by design so they can withstand the volatility through a cycle. You know, where, when it's nobody should have more than 10% of their net worth in something like this, their portfolio. And so when it's less than 10% of your net worth as an overall portfolio, you know, you can withstand that volatility and do the right thing at the right time, which is buying those hard dips, which eventually will happen. Yeah, no, no, that's 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 spot on. Very well said. Again, everybody here, please make sure you follow Ian Castle, who was kind enough to spend the hour with us. I'll have this as an edited YouTube video in about a week, as well as available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Ian, first time for you and I uh, to speak in this format. Hopefully we'll do it again. And hopefully everybody enjoyed this conversation and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.